And I mean, like, everyone's trying to tell me their issues, and I'm like, bitch, can you just cue up my drums? Welcome back to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony. And I'm Maggie, and we're here to take you on an intersectional feminist approach to books from all over the spectrum. Bestsellers, we've got you covered. That one book from English class you hated while you read it but you can't forget, we've got that too. Comic books, nonfiction, it's all right here. So grab your tea, grab your blanket, and let's get rebellious talking about your new favorite reads. Hello! Welcome back to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony. I'm Maggie. And we're going to talk about one of my favorite books this year. (laughs) We're going to talk about one story from it. The book is Her Body and Other Parties, and the story is The Husband Stitch. Is that what it's called? Yeah, by Carmen Maria Machado. Yes. Yes. So I'm very excited. This was one of the stories that both Maggie and I really enjoyed. And it's kind of cool because it relates to one of the, what do you call them? Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. I forget who that collection is by, but it was like, I feel like everyone in our generation is going to know because there's something that we all read one, two, and three in like second, third, fourth grade. It's based off one of the most famous stories in that. Yeah, and um, they just made a movie of that story series, so it's very timely. They did indeed, although I heard that movie wasn't particularly good. (laughs) Yeah, that's what Amherst told me, (laughs) too. She was not pleased, but I don't know. But the original stories are really great. So this story is really cool, and it's about, it's told from a woman's perspective, and it's about a woman who falls in love with a guy, and she, for some reason, has this ribbon around her neck, and he's constantly wanting to touch it, and she's constantly like, no, and then, you know, craziness ensues, essentially. That's my summary. (laughs) Yeah, I would say so. It's uh, told over the span of their entire lifetimes, so it starts when they're Teenagers. I don't want to think. Yeah, they're uh, they're teenagers, older teenagers, you know, like sixteen, seventeen, and they meet and they kind of fall in love, and then it follows them through their entire life together, kind of dealing with sort of the elephant in the room that her ribbon becomes throughout that time period. Yeah, it's mentioned right away. So when you were first reading this, what struck you about the story? Um. That's a really good question. I'm trying to remember. I first read this, oh God, almost a year ago at this point. And I think it was just the fact I was, I really loved the short story collection, Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark when I was a kid. So for me, I was really struck by the kind of parallels between the two. She does a really great job, Machado, throughout the story of tying in not just to the one story but to the entire collection and like really spinning the norms of those stories on their head wait so are the other stories that are mentioned throughout this one story the husband stitch are those also stories from yeah i didn't know that they yeah, but she changes them all a little bit so that they're like the hubs- husband stitch, you know, they become like very subversive sort of forms of feminism, if that makes sense. Yeah, interesting. So 
that was definitely, I think, what struck me the most through throughout this. I will say I'm really glad. I kind of want to address this now because I know we've talked about this in previous episodes kind of jokingly. Mm-hmm. I'm actually really glad we went back and reread this story and chose this story because it's been no secret on our podcast so far that this short story collection didn't really do it for me. We've joked about it quite a few times, actually, I think, at this point. And there were really only two stories that super stuck with me. And because this is the first one, I feel like as I went through the rest of the collection and kind of wasn't really feeling it, I forgot how much I enjoyed this story because it was the very first one. So it was really nice for me to kind of come back to it with fresh eyes a year later and be like, oh, yeah, like this story is really, really good. Yeah, yeah. I only finished this short story collection like a few months ago. So it's much more fresh in my mind but I get that it starts with a really strong story and then I could see why other stories might pale in comparison yeah I I mean we don't have to talk about the entire collection for me it was mostly for me it was really marred by the fact that I've never seen Law and Order SVU I'm probably one of the only people on the planet so the fact that like 130 pages of the book is taken up by a story that I had no hope of understanding was I think ultimately what colored the entire thing for me um but yeah it's just such a strong story it's so good it's so good so let's dive into the story itself it starts one of the one of the things that really struck me about this story is the way that it starts it's meant to be read out loud and i'm hoping throughout the podcast if maggie indulges me enough um, we can do some of these bits written uh read out loud but it starts off talking about how one should read the story as though it's some sort of like audio play or something. And what really struck me was that she says that you should read her, me, as a child, high-pitched, forgettable, as a woman, the same. But her son and her husband are not read like that. They are given both very distinct, very loving descriptions, I feel like, for how you should read them. What did you think about that? I thought it was interesting because I think there is a distinction between the way that they're talked about. Uh, Definitely, right? Like, she's the only female character in the story besides her mother. Her mother isn't given, like, a a voice role in this, like, voices thingamajig. But if you look at the language used to describe her husband, her father, and her son, yes, it is very loving, but they are also all kind of interchangeable as well like they have very much the same tone to them you know like her son her like her son it even ends by saying that as a man he's like her husband you know so like they both grow into being the same person and then the father it's like like your father or the man who you wish was your father so i found that interesting because she says specifically that the women are all interchangeable and she gives the men technically distinct roles but then they end up being very very similar and kind of interchangeable as well in the end that's true yeah i don't know um i do want to correct you real quick because there are other women speaking in this and her mother does have a section no i mean like it in the voices thing it says me the boy my father my son and then all other women i just meant that her mother wasn't like specifically marked out here oh yeah yeah i mean i guess the father is booming i i think that the son, to me, sounds a little bit more distinct. Maybe just because he's a child, but he's described as gentle, and neither of the other two men are described that way. 
And I think that's important because her son's character, even though he is said to be just kind of like his father, does end up being a more sort of distinct man. And she feels like she has a little bit more ownership of him. I think that's really interesting. I think that the voices for me, ultimately, the most interesting one ends up being my father, uh, like your father or the man who you wish was your father. Because I think that for me, it really changed the my whole reading of it. Because um, like my dad is a very gentle man and things like that. So like I didn't read him as a very booming character or anything like that. So I don't know. I thought it was very, I, I just thought it was very interesting. Yeah, I understand. I didn't pay attention at all to her parents because they're so, like, minuscule to the overall story. Oh, yeah, they're so inconsequential. It, beca- it's, it The story is ultimately about her, her future husband, and then her actual husband, and then her son. What I really loved, though, about this beginning is that it starts off with her. She's 17. And, I mean, not to get too personal, but, like, that's the age I lost my virginity. And so it really, really resonated with me. And it focuses on her want. And she is kind of the, um, in the beginning parts, she is the instigator of all things sexual. And it is a very, very sexual book in the beginning. And it's even a little hot. And um, I actually wrote that on our Google Doc, Maggie. I said, this book is hot. (laughs) But it's just, it's just so important to me because it does focus a lot on her want. And then after she's married, after she becomes pregnant, it focuses less on her desire, like her desire is still described and she still wants, but it becomes a lot more about her husband's desire. She's not teaching him. She's submitting and giving to him. Yeah, I thought it was really interesting as well, because the story is very set in like very traditional, I would say, values and family setups. But from the beginning, we see that be subverted in a lot of ways because it sets up from the female main character knowing what she wants and getting it and not giving a fuck what anyone else like thinks about that you know she says at one point page four so throughout this story as my has already mentioned there's other stories interspersed and i guess that they all have to do with scary stories to tell in the dark but she says I once heard a story about a girl who requested something so vile from her paramour that he told her family and they had her hauled off to a sanatorium. I don't know what deviant pleasure she asked for, though I desperately wish I did. What magical thing could you want so badly they take you away from the known world for wanting it? That's the first quote I had written down too. I thought that was really good. No, no, no. It's magical, though. Her want is magical. And I think it's just so important, too, because we as a society have such discomfort and yet sexualization of teenagers and teenage girls, especially because, I mean, girls are supposed like physically mature faster than boys. And I think that that's really uncomfortable for us. And I think it's uncomfortable to be a girl in a lot of ways. But like we... She's just like owning this part of her sexuality and this power and I I think as a society, we think teenage girls are both entirely innocent or entirely dangerous because they have this supposed sexual power or they're like coming into this sexuality. And I don't know. I just really appreciate it that she's like all about that, all about her wand. (laughs) I did too. And I think that that section is also really important because it sets up a foreshadowing tone for the entire rest of the story, which is that this story ultimately is about three things. Desire, trust, 
and secrets and how those three things are like really paramount to whatever relationships that you have whether it's like a romantic thing or between your family like the mother-son thing like desire in this story starts out being very very sexual and it stays that way throughout but we see other kinds of desire as well as she becomes a mother and like wants her son to be a good like a good man and things like that so i thought that 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 story was a really important one to start with because like we see the importance of secrets and how they can be tantalizing and how people can want to know them right from the start. Did we ever, so when we were talking a little bit about their voices, sorry, I know this is jumping a little bit back to where we just were. Did we ever discuss why we thought that they were nondescript? Like, why do we think, because I think this really marks her as a distinct character and different from most women, her, her desire and her want different from our like stories of women and I don't know, did we ever talk about why we think that's important that her voice is nondescript? Do you have do you think it's important? Why do you think that if it is? Because I, I know it's important, but I'm not entirely sure why. I think that it suggests to a certain extent that like deep down this sort of innate sexuality isn't part of maybe not all women, because I, I that is like a gross overgeneralization, but like is a part of a lot of women and that like the voice thing is kind of reminiscent of the fact that it's difficult for us to like you were saying before like it's, it can be very uncomfortable for to be a girl it's very uncomfortable for our society to talk about women having sex and things like that and so i for me i kind of read it as like a lot of the desires that our main character talks about are things that all women go through but they have to hide their voice when speaking about it because even here right like we, something I think that's really interesting about this story is that there is no use of quotation marks. It's all dashes. And a lot of the exposition happens. There's quotation marks. Oh, is there in your copy? There's not in the original publication of the story. Oh, interesting. She uses dashes instead of quotation marks. Harmony and I are looking at different editions, by the way. I'm looking, <laughs> sorry, I'm, like, I'm looking at when it was first published by Granta Magazine in 2014. So in the original publication, there there wasn't any. So I think that's an interesting difference. But like the the voice, the speaking, the dialogue is really on the back burner. And a lot of the desire aspects we see, not all of them, but a lot of them we see through her thinking about them, not necessarily speaking to her husband about them and like communicating openly. That's interesting. So do we want to talk about the first time they like, go into the the woods and he touches her ribbon i was gonna say can we go back just to the first time they meet first because i think that's something we've dealt with a lot in pretty much every single episode it feels like not quite but in a lot of our episodes is this like insta love thing and that happens in this story too she meets him and she automatically knows she's going to marry him i think that the insta love sort of role played a much different played out much differently in witches of new york for example oh gosh this story reminds me in so many ways of the roxanne gay story we looked at last week what was it called which one the one with the darkness one oh yeah i don't remember <laughs> maybe i'll insert it 
Here. The Sacrifice of Darkness. Yeah. <laughs> but, like, that one also, to a certain extent, had almost a level of insta-love. Like, they were friends for a long time, but it was clear that they were going to be paired off. And I was wondering if potentially in the short story format, like, I was just wondering how you felt about that. Because I think that to a certain extent, it's, like, kind of problematic. But then on the other hand, I also feel like with the short story format, like, you have such limited space to get your point across that, like, in a story like this wasting a lot of time talking about like them falling in love would have taken away I think a little bit from the point of it because we see a lot of when they first get together it's just that like she makes the decision instantly you know after the first time yeah and I was just wondering about your thoughts on that because in this story especially it really struck me because within the first like three minutes of you reading the story she's like I'm gonna marry this boy (laughs) I understand that I think well, okay. So it doesn't bother me as much in a short story because it's because the nature of it is different. Like this story deals so much with parables and metaphor and it's surrealist. So it doesn't seem like it has to feel realistic for me, but in this story it also kind of does. Like I very much remember being 17 and thinking I was going to marry my first boyfriend. And I think too because it comes from a place of desire, it seems different to me it's not like I love him right away it's like he is hot he makes me want to touch myself and therefore I'm going to marry him so that to me for some reason it it just doesn't like it doesn't raise the same red flags because I think it's a little bit more realistic but also it's not in a way that has to be realistic I also think it's different from the darkness story because in the darkness story they don't fall in love right away but you don't get to I mean you kind of get to see their love story but there's like lots of time jumps in which that happens there is in this one too I think it just strikes me as really interesting because we see we've seen in a lot of these stories like very very young couples getting married and I agree with you that I think that that aspect does make it more realistic but as somebody who knows Harmony she did not marry the boy that she was with when she was 17 you know like (laughs) thank gosh I think lots of people do feel that way and and don't necessarily make that same like really intense leap, you know? I don't know. It just I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing or makes the story unrealistic. I think I'm more just thinking of it in the sense of like, okay, this is like now multiple stories where we see the same kind of theme happening and I'm I'm interested about that kind of like throughout this sort of larger arc of our season kind of exploring that more. I understand. I think I know we didn't explore on air <laughs> difficult woman and and we're not exploring the rest of the stories in this book, but I think they're both similar in that they're exploring it seems it's it's it seems to me like they're exploring different female experiences throughout the American experience, difficult woman a little bit more explicitly. And that is a large part of a lot of people's experiences in America specifically. A lot of the time people in the Midwest or the South or even people we grew up with. I mean, hey, you're married young. Like, it's a large, a lot of people do end up marrying young, and a lot of people do end up marrying their high school sweethearts. And I think they especially did, like, 20 years ago or um, 50 years ago. And this story is nice because it's, like, not set in any time, but I kind of get a 50-ish sort of vibe from it. Yeah, I do too. And, like, I I was actually also going to directly mention the fact that I got married when I was 22 so like this isn't supposed to be the fact like this isn't supposed to be me being like 
like saying that this is inherently a bad thing, right? Like I, I have a happy marriage. I, I like I don't regret getting married young by any means. I just think it's interesting that like we can. I feel like there's been recently in what we've been looking at, and I mean maybe it's just the choices that we've been making, but like there's been a lot of this kind of like sort of insta love that leads to some kind of forever. Yeah. Um, the witches of New York, like I was saying, definitely had a different sort of insta love, like Adelaide and Brody, we saw their relationship grow. Uh, and a lot of the other insta love was like friendship wise. I don't know. It just, it strikes me as being very similar, but frankly, the dangerous woman and her body and other parties, excuse me, strike me as being very similar in a lot of ways. Um, and most of them really good. Yeah. It just really, it just really jumped out at me in this story. I think partially it's because I did get married young. So I'm like kind of attuned to the things that let me back up. I think that maybe this is sort of a me problem because a lot of the reason people criticize people who get married young is because it's like an insta love thing and like you don't really know what you want and stuff. Mm -hmm. And I think that as somebody who got married young, seeing it so explicitly in a story just like that makes me chafe a little bit because like in a lot of ways that specific like insta love isn't necessarily the way it always happens you know when people get married a lot young so like maybe this is a little bit more of a me problem because i've come up against a lot of opinions about the facts like when i got married and things like that and a lot of it is because like when you're young you can't possibly know what you want and stuff and i think that's something that we're gonna have to discuss as we go through this story is like whether she made the right choice with like staying with this dude for forever you know considering what happens at the end yeah, I mean, I think that she still thinks that she did. And it's hard because we oh, don't for know. Sure. Yeah, it's hard because the time is never explicitly mentioned. And like, we don't, we don't know the societal context completely. It's also difficult too because I think that you're maybe a little bit more sensitive to it because you're 23. And in uh, like a millennial, you're a 23 year old millennial in 2019. And, you know, you're well educated, you have a graduate degree and a, like, Statistically, people like you, people like us, really don't get married until we're older. And I think in yeah. our circle, too, like we're both, um, you know, we're both on coasts. That usually uh, leads to delayed marriage rates. There's a, a number of different factors. So, like, people in the circle that Maggie and I tend to be in, or like the people we interact with just because of our locations and, uh, I don't know, <laughs> time periods don't marry young. And it is kind of still seen as abnormal. But I think that that's not the case for a lot of other people who have different life experiences than we do. <laughs> that's, that's true. But I do think that what you're saying about the fact that we don't know the specific time frame in this story is important because on the, because they do say her mother says explicitly that there are a lot of other young people who are waiting until later to get married. Yeah. And that she she got married to the main character's father. It's hard because this is another story where no one has any goddamn names. <laughs> but um, I think that's intentional. Oh, for sure. But it makes it so hard to discuss when there's like, but the mother and the father in the story also got married young. And like she passes that wisdom down to her daughter when she's 18, like days after her 18th birthday, saying that she's going to get married. Um 
and like she's all gung ho for it. But then also at the same time, I thought something was in- that was interesting was that when they go to go back to the scene that you wanted to talk about, where mm-hmm. they were going to have sex in the woods. Do you want to read um, it? Do you want to read the sexiness, or is that too much for you on air? <laughs> uh, I can read it, but first I want to talk a little bit more about okay. the time frame thing, just because these two scenes were like back to back, but had kind of like. Um, she's wearing pantyhose when they go into the woods. And I thought that was something really interesting because that is like really, I think it's fair to say kind of like an out of date thing today. Like maybe for professional functions or something, somebody our age would like wear pantyhose, but like in just like your day-to-day life. I don't know. I thought it was really interesting. And like, there's a lot of, I think purposefully, a lot of ambiguity about the timing here because certain aspects of it read like it's totally you know contemporary day this it looks like the story was first published in 2014 and then there are other aspects like you're told i totally agree with you that completely give you like a 1950s sort of feel and i think that those i think that those two kind of like competing settings almost for the time period are really important in this story yeah and I also think no matter what the era of the story I mean I think that yeah you're right it's it's supposed to be ambiguous but no matter what the era would have been I think that the idea of traditional family values could be anytime and I know that like when I went to college a lot of my peers did want to get married young and I who was not did not not raise them with traditional values as I think we've talked about before was like what are you doing why (laughs) yeah I do think that we could look maybe at those values and maybe that informs her choice of man and informs her opinions on her choice of man no i completely agree with you though and i think that like part of the point just again to reiterate what you're saying is the fact that these family values like we think of ourselves now in 2019 as being so evolved and away from them but like they're in a lot of places in a lot of contexts like they're still very much at our core of yeah. how a lot of people are raised yeah for I, sure and I don't even think it always matters like what place you're in like I am in New York City and in a lot of ways we are a social like socialist hellhole or something is what somebody might describe us as not me um but <laughs> like there's a lot of very liberal-minded people here but there are still people who are Trump supporters and there are still people who are raised with a lot of traditional values and that's kind of the cool thing about living here in a melting pot but I think that exists everywhere. That's existed. I've lived in a bunch of places and there are always people who have different mindsets. Yeah, absolutely. Do you want me to read the uh, scene in the woods now? The sexy. Yeah. Sounds good. <laughs> My mother's listening. I'd appreciate it if she turned it off now. <laughs> My mother invites him in for supper, and while we eat, I dig my nails into the meat of his leg. After the ice cream puddles in the bowl, I tell my parents that I am going to walk with him down the lane. We strike off through the night, holding hands sweetly until we are out of sight of the house. I pull him through the trees, and when we find a patch of clear ground, I shimmy off my pantyhose and on my hands and knees offer myself up to him. I have heard all of the stories about girls like me, and I am unafraid to make more of them. There are two rules. He cannot finish inside of me, and he cannot touch my green ribbon. He spends into the dirt, pat-pat-patting like the beginning of rain. I go to touch myself, but my fingers, which had been curling in the dirt beneath me, are filthy. I pull up my underwear and stockings. 
He makes a sound and points, and I realize that beneath the nylon, my knees are also caked in dirt. I pull them down and brush, and then up again. I smooth my skirt and repin my hair. A single lock has escaped his slick back curls, and I tuck it up with the others. We walk down to the stream, and I rub my hands in the curtain until they are clean again. We stroll back to the house, arms linked chastely. Inside, my mother has made coffee, and we all sit around while my father asks him about business. If you read this story out loud, the sound of the clearing can be best reproduced by taking a deep breath and holding it for a long moment. (sighs) Then release the air all at once, permitting your chest to collapse like a block tower knocked to the ground. Do this again and again, shortening the time between the held breath and the release. So I guess he doesn't touch her ribbon there. When does he first touch his, her ribbon? When he they asks fir- about it. When they first have sex in the car. Ah, but yes. I, but I think that that's, I think that the scene is important in two ways. Because one, it establishes that every time they have sex, at least at the beginning, he doesn't get her off. She has to do it herself. Um, that's true both times. And yeah. two, it also establishes the fact that he we see a lot of him asking about the ribbon in the story because the ribbon is the point, but I think it's important to note that it's not an every time thing. She believes him very deeply all the way to the end of the story to at his core, be a good man. And I think it's important to note that like, while he pushes the boundaries at certain moments in their relationship, I think that scenes like this are meant to say that like, touching the ribbon and talking about the ribbon are not necessarily an everyday all the time thing if that makes sense because i think that if they were their relationship probably wouldn't have gone as far as it did if that makes sense yeah because it does shake her a little bit more each time what do you think about the assertion that he's a good man or do you want to get into that later i think it depends on when we want to spoil the ending of the story because we haven't really talked about how it ends yet you know (laughs) so maybe maybe let's save that until the end and talk about it there although i'm assuming that anyone who's listening to a short story episode of ours is probably not reading along as we go but you know let's let's keep (laughs) the suspense going i wouldn't know why you you picked out this line i'm looking at your notes Mm -hmm. but he is a little craggy in the way that men sometimes are and i want is it just the idea of want? No, I, I think it also reminded me, I was really stuck in the difficult woman one, just because we, we talked last week also, or the week before, I don't know, I don't remember when these episodes are coming out, we're, we're recording all over the place, people, but uh, <laughs> but when we talk about Dangerous Woman, I know those episodes come about, come out first, there is an emphasis, I just thought it was an interested, like, repeating theme again that we've seen now starting to happen through our season, about this idea of wanting a kind of rougher man who's also gentle, and like, I think that in the Dangerous Woman stories, that trope, at least in the two we talked about, that trope turns out a little bit better than it does ultimately for our main character in this story. Yes. Um, I'm going to correct you on air real quick, just because Dangerous Woman is another book. Uh, yeah. But the, we're talking about Difficult Woman. Oh, oh, God, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> the stories we read in, in Difficult Woman. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's just interesting. We're... I don't know if you and I are just, like, drawn to these same kind of themes or if, like, I mean, these books, they've all come out in the past five years, you know? Like, if, like, this is just what a lot of people are, like, contending with and dealing with and thinking about at the moment. Or I think what's most likely is just, like, it's a little bit of both, you know? Yeah, I under, I mean, hmm. I'm wondering 
if there is a connection, but I also think it's striking too, because even though these two women have had very different life experiences, like they're two contemporary authors of color too, that are being renowned for these short stories. And so I wonder if that has any relevance to the themes, because I don't think, well, I think that it does definitely inform a lot of their writing. Like a lot of it isn't just focused, um, on experiences that I think would be particular to people of color. Oh yeah, for sure. I think that's, yeah, absolutely. I totally agree with that. Yeah. So I don't know. That's a similar sort of theme too with these two books. I love them both. (laughs) Do we want to talk a little bit about something that we've sort of touched upon, um, which is that like the idea of stories is really important to part of the main character's power or that's how I perceived it as being at least like what is the role of her being a storyteller in this like story obviously on like a mechanical level part of it is like they're bringing she's bringing in more of the scary stories from the dark and it's like a nostalgic thing and stuff but I think it's really it's one of the core things we know about our main character's identity besides the fact that she's a very sexual person I wonder if that I mean, this isn't the first time we see it, but she kind of addresses it directly when she's talking about the toe that she saw. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know what page that's on, even though I think I wrote it down. Oh, here we go. In the potatoes. Mm -hmm. Let's see. I have always been a teller of stories. When I was a young girl, my mother carried me out of a grocery store as I screamed about toes in the produce aisle concerned woman turned and watched as I kicked the air and pounded my mother's slender back. Okay, so I've also been kind of grappling with the idea of her as a storyteller, and I'm now just coming to this conclusion. This isn't something I put together before, but this story deals a lot, like this entire, this, yeah, this story, The Husband's Ditch, deals a lot with consent, and all of the, not all of them, but a lot of the, um, stories she interweaves throughout it also deal with the idea of a woman's truth versus the truth around like the societal truth that that is being told to the woman and that's really uh present within this toe story her father tells her that it can't be possible and like the the quote is they had been there. I had seen them with my own eyes, but beneath the sunbeam of my father's logic, I felt my doubt unfurl. And to me, it just seemed very reminiscent of um, survivors who come out about their stories and then like the court system or the men around them telling them that it's untrue or that they don't have any reason to complain. And that was a theme I thought was present throughout all of the books. So I think maybe the idea of her being a storyteller has to do with the fact that like, this is my truth, even if it doesn't seem real to you. Yeah. And I think that the most important quote in this section is the one at the very end. Um, As a grown woman, I would have said to my father that there are true things in this world only observed by a single set of eyes. As a girl, I consented to his account of the story and laughed when he scooped me from the chair to kiss me and send me on my way. Because I think that that's really important also in what she teaches her son, because she teaches her son largely through telling stories. And the more we move through this short story, the more she tells stories. And I think that the more kind of they have to do with consent and like 
that's how she teaches him in a lot of ways to respect women. And so I think that like this idea of like, as a grown woman, she is able to stand up for her truth and then pass it on through this storytelling is really, really important. Obviously, if we're equating this and I think we have to be because the main character, it's a small mention, but she tells us that she is she was a victim of sexual assault or abuse when she was a child. So if we're equating these things, then I, I think it's also important to note that neither of us are trying to say that you can only come out much later as a survivor or anything like that. I think that's just something that the main character in this story is kind of alluding to. The, the idea that, like, as a grown-up, she has the words to speak her own story? Yeah, well, I mean, because the story explicitly, kind of explicitly states that, like, as a grown woman, you like, she only talks about what happens to her as a kid as a grown woman and stuff like that. Um, and I think that that's part of what this story says a little bit not to say Mm -hmm. that like everyone comes like has to say their story later as a survivor but that some people do a lot of people do you know um yeah I mean I'm not a sexual assault survivor although I know many people who are and I want to be there for them but like I am a trauma survivor of some sort and one thing for me I didn't at all speak my story or speak what happened to me until I was 18. Like it was something I dealt with when I was very young and I never ever said it to any friends, to any, definitely not any grownups, but like I did not put it into words until I was safely like over the age of childhood. So I think that at least from my experience, I do think that it is easier when you're a grown up because you feel more confident maybe and maybe a little bit more safe and because you know more. And I also think that it's hard because when you're a child, if you try to speak out about things, people aren't going to believe you or take you as seriously. I think that seems similar to the people in my life who have told me about their experiences with sexual assault as a child. Like, I think that is a commonality between these experiences. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) I just wanted to make it clear that, like, we are talking about this specifically point from the point of view of the story and not necessarily saying as two individuals that like this is the way things have to happen um that that was my only point bringing that up because i think that sometimes when you talk about like we get really personal as as that just happened when we talk about these short stories and things like that but i think sometimes it's important to contextualize and and separate when we're talking about our personal opinions versus when we're trying to understand like what the opinion of the story is you know yeah I definitely understand that I think because I was still kind of making the connection with consent I was talking through it with you and had not actually drawn any conclusions like I I kind of forgot about her story about sexual assault I had right, a I very did, brief mention. I did the same thing. I also, I hadn't, I, I had been thinking about the fact that this story is obviously about consent because like, it's just what it's about. But like, mm-hmm. I also was talking through those conclusions with you. I hadn't, I had thought I had thought deeply about it, but like, I hadn't connected it to the storyteller part, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Another thing that happens that I think might relate to the story's ideas about consent, consent, but I'm not quite sure yet. And hopefully you have some ideas of your own about it. But she talks a lot of the story has to do with secrets, which I think is something you picked up on. And a lot of the the stories that are interweaved and the beginning stories that she tells within the story have to do with the unknown and secrets. And I feel like, I mean, the ribbon, she never 
I don't even know if she knows what will happen when it gets untied, but the ribbon kind of stands for like her secrets. And her husband repeatedly says things like a wife shouldn't have secrets from her husband. So I'm wondering if you have any connection between that and consent, because as somebody who is nosy (laughs) and is a journalist, right? Like I, that's something I struggle with, like letting people have their secrets. And so I don't know if there's some sort of connection made there in the story. I, it's really interesting, I think, that you brought that up because a question that I had was this idea of do we need to know absolutely positively everything about our partners? And is that even possible? Like, is that something mm-hmm. we should be, is that something we should even be striving towards? Or is like real true trust in some ways saying you have your secrets and I respect why you're keeping them? Uh, and I trust that you're not keeping them for reasons that would hurt me as your partner you know because I was thinking about it and I was thinking within the context I think it I think it totally has to do with consent but I think that like I was saying before I think that this story is really about the intertwining between desire and trust and secrets I think that consent has a lot to do with all of those things because you have to consent to trust someone you have to consent to you know do anything like involving consec- uh, sexual desire but you also have to consent to like tell somebody secrets like if you went behind your partner's back and just started dicking up all their dirty shit like that would be a super breach of trust you know like unless they said i don't really want to tell you the story but if you go and ask so and so for their point of view like that's fine with me you know so i think that consent is a really important thing but it made me think about my own relationship a little bit too and thinking about the fact that like I met my husband when I was 19. So like we were pretty young. He's two years older than I am. But like that means that we lived for two decades before we met each other, right? Like because of that, there are things, of course, that like we will never know about each other. And like depending on how you look at that, it could seem like a secret. But and maybe some of them are, you know, like maybe there are just things that like you don't you don't even consciously realize you're keeping secret, you know, because they just happened in your past and they don't feel relevant. So like, I think that there's, I think the interesting thing is that you have to trust your partner. I, or at least this was the conclusion I came up with after like really pondering this question that I think the story brings up a lot is that trusting your partner for me, I think means, or anyone in your life is about respecting the fact that they are inevitably going to have things about them that you will never find out and understanding that those secrets are not being kept from you as a way to hurt you, but as a way to protect the person who has them, who might not want to talk about them for various reasons. Like if my partner he would never do this but like if my partner was cheating on me and was keeping that a secret like that's different to me than like him having a story about his past that he just doesn't feel comfortable sharing you know like one is a breach of trust and one is not if that makes sense yeah it definitely does I guess I mean it's hard for me as a person because like in my relationships honesty is key and that is how I as a human operate um but also in the book 
But I think that you can be honest with someone and not share every single thing about yourself with them. Yeah, no, I agree. It's just interesting, though, because in the book, when he when the husband confronts our narrator about her ribbon and the supposed secret, she says, it's not a secret. It's just mine. And she does talk about like giving herself to him all the time and like not holding anything back. And she does tell him about her um, assault. Yeah. there's all these things that she does share with him and it's just this one thing and I don't even that he just won't give her yeah and it says that or like yeah she won't give him I guess um or like yeah he won't give her because it's like it's hers yeah like she describes it as like as like going both ways in that sense and I'm wondering if it's I don't know I guess okay we're going back into the personal sorry world personal is political um (laughs) no yeah that's true but, like, my partner has this joke where he has a secret life because he goes around and he buys pickles without me and, like, goes around our neighborhood and gets coffee every morning. But, like, I don't find out about it until well afterwards. But he then he does tell me about it. He, and he goes, yeah, that's a part of my secret life. It tastes better because you're not there. Because if I had this and I'm like, oh, OK, well, how does it taste better? And he's like, because if you were there, you would ask for a bite of the sandwich and stuff like that. And I think it's less the secretiveness because it's not a secret I know about it it's just the idea that like he has these things that he does on his own that are for him that I don't immediately yeah that are for him and that I don't immediately know about that makes it like yeah yeah his so I wonder if that if it's just like this is for me it's not a secret it's just that like this is mine I need some sort of independence from you maybe I think that that is a really important and valid point I wonder a little bit, though, just because the ribbons in and of themselves, it's not just her who has a ribbon, it's every single woman. So it... Yeah. And we don't find that out until, like, halfway through. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, I think that it's an important and interesting idea to think also about the fact of, like, a shared sort of secret between women that men in this story are excluded from because like all of the women have this one thing that is theirs and I think it's also even more important to note that our main character is the only woman we meet in this story who has it around her neck some people have it around their ankles I think we see another person who has it around like a finger which I think plays importantly into the way that the story ends yeah okay interesting because at one point when she's she she wonders whether or not men have their own ribbons that you just can't see and it is kind of implied to that like her husband she says something about after she has her first child she can't have any more and she thinks it's because her first child like screwed up her body so bad or something like that um yeah, he was a bad tenant. That's how she it. <laughs> Which is really cute. <laughs> it's awful, but it's also like, that's, it, it's very sweet. Anyway. It's sweet because she loves him unconditionally regardless. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, it's not his fault. It's a, a nice way of looking at it, I guess. It's yeah. like, oh God, that's horrible. But also, yeah, she still loves him um, and recognizes that it's not his fault. But she wonders whether or not her husband is disappointed that they can't have more kids. And she says that he keeps things like disappointment close to his chest. He doesn't wear them openly like his desires. And it sounds like she, for the most part, is very open with her husband. So I wonder, too, if that's why the women have these externalized ribbons. 
because maybe they're not allowed to have any secrets or not allowed to have any independence in the way that men are? I think that's a good point, but I think I would phrase it a little bit differently in the sense that in our society, women are expected to be more emotional and open creatures and men are expected to keep all of that close to the heart. Yeah. And I think it can manifest in the way that you were talking about about the fact that like women feel like they can't have any secrets or hold anything back and men can feel like they only have secrets or are holding emotional things back that's very interesting except for their desires and their wants which i think is one of the really interesting parts of this book that like or of this story that makes it so different like if this story i think didn't have such intense sexual desire at the center of it it would be very different because the sex because it's not a part of what we typically typically think of like a housewife being or anything you know and like and like this this the main character is a housewife and she has no shame about that right like and for the most part except for right after her son goes to school for the first time like she doesn't seem upset about this law or like bored or anything but like she is simultaneously both like this archetype for being a very sexual and sexualized person and also a housewife simultaneously. And it makes her a very like whole and realistic character to me because like, we're not falling into archetypes in a lot of ways in this story. I don't know. I think that one of the reasons I like the story a lot is that we play a lot with what our expectations of people's um, behaviors and like thoughts and feelings should be. And in certain cases, those expectations are correct based on what society has instilled in us. And in certain cases, they aren't. So I think that that's what makes this story like really juicy and complicated, as well as being a very nuanced message about consent. I agree. And going back just a smidge to our conversation about women feeling like they can't hold anything back to the point that you made, I think that's really exemplified when we meet the model uh, because our main character goes to a nude class, a, a class where she can like draw people in the nude, essentially, um, so that she can fill her time as a housewife. And she meets a woman there who she has sexual desire for. And she tells her husband, and right after she bursts into tears because she felt like she betrayed the woman. And she feels weird about it the entire time, too, because she's very concerned because the woman she meets isn't just somebody else who's in the class. She is specifically the nude model that they are drawing. Mm -hmm. And she feels really intense guilt because the person is there, like, putting herself on display, but is not necessarily consenting to be opened up to be sexualized, you know? So, like, the main character feels a lot of very kind of like poignantly intense guilt about the fact that like she recognizes that she has these feelings and she also kind of starts to act on them she doesn't ultimately but like she essentially takes this woman out on a coffee date and like they connect for a second um yeah i don't know it's it's a really interesting scene where like she almost i don't want to say she takes on a much different role in this story i think than she has before Because in all of her encounters with her husband, it is at least heavily implied, if not explicit, that he is consenting to the things that are going on between the two of them. And like, this is the point. And like, but that the same can't be said of his actions to her because of his continually violating her rules about the ribbon. Mm -hmm. Um, 
and this is the only point in the story where we feel where we see the main character kind of stepping more into his role in that sense and being unsure of where to go or what to do or what was appropriate but like instead of just acting she like really internalizes that guilt you know yeah i'm wondering i mean i don't think that the story is making any moral judgments on it but no i don't think so either i just i i don't know i one of the that's something I hear a lot from my friends who are trying to form relationships with other women is the guilt that they feel when sexualizing other women. And it's it's just weird because men sexualize women without their consent all the time. And so I, I don't know, like, I'm wondering if she's being too careful or if that's what we should all be doing. I think that there's <laughs> like I think that it's maybe somewhere in the middle Like, I don't know, because I I think that part of, I think that part of it is that, like, you would never want to put another woman in that position where you would, where, like, that you would feel uncomfortable in. Yeah. And I think that potentially part of the main character's point where she's having this sort of inner monologue is that, like, if she were the nude model, she wouldn't necessarily feel comfortable being sexualized. Yeah. And I think that for her, that's where the moment of hesitation comes in. Um, So it's empathy. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think so. Um, they're talking about their their children and the differences between raising a boy and a girl. Um, and she says, I am captivated by her. There is no other way to put it. There is something easy about her, but not easy the way I was, the way I am. She's like dough, how the give of it beneath kneading hands disguises its sturdiness, its potential. When I look away from her and then look back, she seems twice as large as before. Perhaps we can talk again sometime, I say to her. This has been a very pleasant afternoon. She nods to me. I pay for her coffee. I do not want to tell my husband about her, but he can sense some untapped desire. One night, he asks what royals inside of me, and I confess it to him. I even describe the details of her ribbon, releasing an extra flood of shame. He is so glad of this development, he begins to mutter a long and exhaustive fantasy as he removes his pants and enters me. I feel as if I have betrayed her somehow and I never return to the class. So returning back to your original point here, I think that there's something interesting about the fact that, like, there is, in talking to her husband about it, she, in describing the woman's ribbon, breaks her own, like, rule of consent almost, and that's the point where she's like, no, I can't go see this woman again. Like, I have broken my own rule here, and, and therefore I... It's almost like a feeling... Obviously, it's not explicitly stated, but the tone of it, I feel like, is almost a feeling like she can't... She feels like she can't trust herself with that woman mm-hmm. for that explicit reason. And I think the fact that that is what is implied to have turned her husband on in that moment, and then, like, they have this really, like weird thing where he's like muttering in her ear while they have sex like I think that that's the tipping point you know yeah yeah I could see that I want to go can we go back to that scene because there were a few other things that don't relate to this point that I do want to talk about and unpack with you yes I we skipped a lot of the story talking about this which I think is good but let's definitely roll back a little bit okay so um doe she mentions that the woman is like dough and earlier on the story she mentions that her husband smells like bread and I wonder if you think there's some sort of connection there or what that is like maybe bread is the cooked version it can't be anything and the woman can I just think it's interesting that both of those things 
mark her desire. Yeah, that is really interesting. I didn't, I noted both metaphors, but didn't, like, connect them mm-hmm. prior to this. Um, so he smells like bread. He smells like the finished version. I almost wonder if part of it is, like, unknown uncharted territory a little bit like with the with the bread version like you might not have eaten bread before but you have a decent idea of what you're gonna get right because it's baked it's finished it's right there in front of you it smells fucking delicious but like with the dough if you've never done it before if you've never been there before right like there are still you don't know what the finished product is gonna be you don't know if like you're gonna like it things like that you don't know like there's a lot of I think more unknowns with dough than there is with like a finished loaf of bread I say this is somebody who makes a lot of bread and um it's in the dough form it can turn against you or be really great it depends (laughs) oh gosh I feel like that sounds like a really terrible metaphor but I, I really just like to bake bread okay okay and then also while talking to this woman on page 22 and 23 of my version, I know not yours because you're not reading the, the, the book book version. All right. 22, 23, the woman is telling uh, our narrator about raising her daughter. And she says. Eleven is a terrifying age, she says. I remembered nothing before I was eleven. But then there it was, all color and horror. What a number. And then later on, she says, let's see. Later on, our narrator says. I desperately want to know what state of need has sent her to disrobe before us. But perhaps I do not ask because the answer would be, like adolescence, too frightening to forget. that's really interesting because they are talking about the differences between raising a girl and a boy and what it might be like to raise a girl in this world. And I just, I I don't know. I found that so, I found that so compelling. The idea of adolescence being color and rage and adolescence being this horrible, frightening thing. And I wonder if that's specific to women because throughout these stories, all of the stories that she's telling for the most part deal with women and one story, there is a girl and a boy in a car and there's a killer on the loose and he has a hook hand and the girl is concerned about it. And the boy's like, nah, let's bang, babe. Uh, so they, they do their like make out thing. But the girl sees the man with the hook and he waves at her. And like, there's just this knowledge that like women know the scariness. And she kind of alludes to that. Like she speaks to that directly in relation to her husband, like how her husband does not think about all the horrors of the world. He, When it's Halloween, he lets the child eat the candy before um, our narrator has had a chance to check it to see if there's any razors or anything because that was a big scare at one point in time. My mother always did that. (laughs) But yeah, so like there's this idea that as a man, he doesn't need to know the horrors and he doesn't know the mysteries. Yeah, so I don't know if adolescence in itself is just scary for girls. I think that connects actually very intriguingly with the scene where she gives birth. Um, Because when she gives birth to her son, they almost have to give her a C-section. And there's a story 
right in between the the two scenes where she gives birth. So she it starts with I'm in labor for 20 hours. She talks about how much pain she's in, you know, etc. Um, the doctor says that he's not satisfied that it'll be a natural birth and that surgery might be necessary. And she panics. She says, no, please. I don't want that, please. Um, and then she says, I make a deal with little one in my mind. Little one, I think this is the last time that we are going to be just you and me. Please don't make them cut you out of me. Little one is born 20 minutes later. They do have to make a cut, but not across my stomach as I had feared. The doctor cuts down and I feel a little just tugging, though perhaps that is what they've given to me. When the baby is placed in my arms, I examine the wrinkled body from head to toe, the color of a sunset sky, streaked and streaked in red. No ribbon, a boy. I begin to weep and curl the unmarked baby into my chest. And I thought that that was really interesting because it, like, she's really excited to give birth the entire time. Like, she's happy to be pregnant. Her husband's happy she's pregnant. But, like, this uncertainty of what's going to happen to her body and the idea that she can't control it is terrifying to her and i think it's also really interesting when you look at the scene two scenes later i suppose where it's back to her and she's like kind of freaking out a little bit in a bed but like everyone else is fine because the baby's fine and the husband is going to get coffee and stuff and like there's this very i think bodily terror her relationship with her body, I think, is very interesting because in certain ways, in certain aspects in the story, she's really confident about it and it gives her what she wants and, like, she has a really great relationship with it. But then in places like this, we see, like, this terror of the unknown happening to her body as well. Mm-hmm. And, like, I think the C-section cut versus the episiotomy cut cut is also really interesting. I was like, my voice probably changed while I was reading it because the idea of getting an episiotomy terrifies me specifically. I'm not pregnant. These are just the ridiculous things I worry about in my life as somebody who wants to have kids one day. So I, I don't know. It just struck me as being very interesting that like, I think it's, I think that there is potentially a conjecture to be made that it's not just the horror of adolescence as a woman. It's like the horror of a lot of things that have to do with your body as a woman, you know, and that like those things can be mastered in certain circumstances and, and can't and others, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Your body stops being your own. And it is interesting too, because around the time that she gives birth, there's a multitude of stories that all become disconnected. And she's talking about like women giving birth and the horrors that have happened to them. These other stories that she's heard. Yeah. And being cut open and that idea. And then also it's like her body really isn't her own in that scenario because the doctor and her husband do a number of terrible, like, weird conspiring to make her vagina tighter. And it's just gross. And it makes me angry. Ah. Yeah, it's like it's like a really bad joke. And like the the joking quote-unquote tone is supposed to make you think that it doesn't actually happen but she is so scared that like you don't really know what happens and i think it's also really interesting so like this is um based off work that i got to do uh as an internship in grad school that i i think is related i don't want to say where specifically because i'm not an expert in this at all just know that this isn't my data i'm just trying to put it out there as some something to consider, which is that in the United States, there are more maternal deaths by a lot than infant deaths. That's pretty common data. So that's, yes, I okay. can verify that. <laughs> especially, especially in the de- uh, not developed world, but like in, in more developed countries in comparison to countries like 
in Scandinavia and stuff like that, both infant and mother mortality is very, very low. Um, and also the United States is really interesting because there's a lot large emphasis, and I'm sure that it's not just here that this is true, but there's a very large emphasis on um, birthing teams because it's kind of assumed that women aren't going to be able to advocate for themselves while they're in birth because they're in a lot of pain. Mm -hmm. So like you're encouraged heavily to go with a birth plan and with a team that you really trust to advocate for what you actually want because especially if you're not giving birth with like any sort of pain relief or things like that you know when you're in transition and stuff like you're not like you're physically unable to talk and things like that so i found this section also very disturbing because it was like her husband wasn't listening to her wishes and like she had to convince them that she didn't want surgery and like i don't know i found that very very disturbing just knowing what i know about like giving birth and and the ways in which like women are expected to not be able to advocate for themselves so like you have to bring somebody who will and to me like that section really signified one of the major places in which the first breakdown in trust happens with her husband in other areas she seems kind of able to shake it off a little bit even as she gets I would say progressively more freaked out throughout the story about the fact that he's touching the ribbon but this is the only place in the story that we see her distrust him kind of explicitly that has nothing to do with the ribbon like this is outside of that a place where she does not trust what he's doing or what her doctor's doing yeah yeah i could see that i i definitely think that's yes because it is two it is two men talking about her body and how they're going to make her vagina tight and to me i read it as it was implied that they did do that because the doctor jokes about it first and then after when she's like kind of less cognizant she hears them talking about it like in the corner yeah he so the doctor when they're talking about the um whether or not they're gonna do a c-section the doctor is like no I'm, i'm just reading it sorry it could be better i mean it's not about making her tighter but he's like it could be better for everyone wink Because, you know, you want a tight lady. And then later they're talking about giving this extra stitch and he's joking about it. But, like, it it does keep coming back, it seems. This idea of, like, making her tighter. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's, I think that, again, what makes this so complicated is the fact that, like, we have all of these moments. And then they get overshadowed by the fact that, like, she changes her focus, it feels like, almost to more things that she can control. Yes. So, like, we, we we have all of these disgusting jokes about like sewing her up nice and tight and she's like she feels sick about it she feels sick about it and then immediately she turns her attention to her baby who is so beautiful she can't breathe like she she turns her attention to more things that she can control you know um but that scene also in conjunction i feel like with all of the conversations we were having about consent i think really kind of disturbed me because in so many places, she views her husband as someone who values her consent. Um, even if we, and of course, throughout the story, like we've been talking about, we see more and more of the ways in which he starts to violate that. But like, I don't know. I This whole thing was very disturbing to me. But I was also really interested. I don't know. This I don't think they dive into this enough in the story for us to really think about it. But I was curious about her kind of motives for really not wanting a c-section yeah. and being more okay with an okay with an episiotomy instead 
Um, I don't think they necessarily give us enough context for that. No. But I I don't know. I just, I, it struck me as like a very interesting thing. I think it's just the idea of like having her child ripped from her. And then it also, it's afterwards, she does talk about all the stories about like these things happening to women in childbirth. So I think it is, again, the unknown. Like it's not what she signed up for. And then- yeah the concept of having her child ripped from her and then also like all of these horror tales she's heard about women at birth. Yeah. I think I, yeah, I think I could really grip onto the idea of like not being what she signed up for and like the unknown. Yeah. I can see that. Do you want to talk about consent and the, the son, the son's relationship to the ribbon? Yeah. Most of the last uh, notes that I have are about her son and then circling back to her husband. So she has this baby. Um, to go back to the plot a little bit, we've been da- <laughs> we're kind of we've been dancing around the big endpoint of the of the plot, but like this is where it starts to kick off. So she has the baby, and she has a really close relationship with him. And it's so close that when he's an infant, she lets him mess with the ribbon. She lets him touch the ribbon. She has absolutely no fear from him. Until he turns like five or six and starts kindergarten. And that's when he starts asking about the ribbon and pulling at the ribbon. He has no, she has no fear of him touching the ribbon because he sees it as a part of her. And Mm -hmm. he only asks about the ribbon and pulls at it after he sees his father do it. Yeah. Does he see her, him do it though? Because it doesn't. Yeah, here. So let me um, find the page number. I'm reading it right now. That's why I'm asking. <laughs> oh, okay. When, no, I mean, when the, it's before he actually pulls at it. It's, um. No, I, I know. I, I'm, I'm, I'm reading the passage, like, right now. You hear his pattering. So it's implied. And then the next okay. day it jumps. So the father, this is, like, he, he tries yeah. to grab, I think this is when he says that the wife should have no secrets No secrets. Or yeah, that, that, do you want me to read it? I'm right there. Yeah. Yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> Deconstructing Damsels is a podcast all about romance books and why the heroine rocks. I mean, we all love the love story. We pretty much all have a crush on the hero. But what about the woman? Why are we not talking about her? What has she done in the story that makes it amazing? What makes her fantastic? What makes the story just so good? Listen to Deconstructing Damsels and I'll tell you. Sometimes there are guests, sometimes I'm by myself. Other times you can have my fiancé talk all the time. And that can be kind of fun too, especially as a newbie for him. The podcast is available on most podcatchers. And if you'd like to be a guest or you'd like to follow me on Twitter, you can find me at Damsels Podcast or Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook and at damselspodcast at gmail.com. Hope you listen soon. He stands up and tucks himself into his pants, zipping them up. A wife, he says, should have no secrets from her husband. I don't have any secrets, I tell him. The ribbon. The ribbon is not a secret, it's just mine. Were you born with it? Why your throat? Why is it green? I do not answer. He is silent for a long minute. Then, a wife should have no secrets. My nose grow hot. grows hot. I do not want to cry. 
I have given you everything you have ever asked for, I say. Am I not allowed this one thing? I want to know. You think you want to know, I say, but you do not. Why do you want to hide it from me? I'm not hiding it. It's not yours. He gets down very close to me, and I pull back from the smell of bourbon. I hear a creak, and we both look up to see our son's feet vanishing up the staircase. I don't know if it's implied necessarily that he sees him messing with the ribbon, but he hears them talking about it at the very least, like arguing about the ribbon. And, and then the, ne- the next day, that's when he asks about it. So it's starting to be like learned behavior from his father. Um, but I do think it's interesting that it coincides with his start to kindergarten all because it also coincides with him leaving his mother's side. It's implied for the first time and like going out into the world and like seeing how other social interactions and things like that work. So like it's learned behavior, I think, yes, from his father, but I think it's also implied that like it's from society in general as well. And that it all kind of culminates in this moment. And she makes a rule with him where she's like, you can't touch it. You kind of can't even ask about it. And she has to scare him away from her to keep him from like messing with it with a, with a a soda can full of pennies. What do you think about that guilt that she has? Because for the most part, she doesn't feel guilty telling her husband no. She's like, no, this is mine. But there is a very specific guilt that she feels about not sharing this part of herself with her son. I think it's also a sadness because there was a time where she felt like she could. I think it's tied together. Like, I think it's both guilt and grief simultaneously. Oh, okay. Interesting. Yeah, I don't know, because I have lots of younger siblings, um, and I remember them being babies, because they're not that old. I do, yeah. Yeah, yes, we both do. But, like, there is a sort of, like, when you're a baby, like, sometimes little babies will do weird things to your nipples or something, (laughs) and, like, there's just, like, a lot of that, and it's, it's, like, innocent and sweet, so it's not very bothersome, and I wondered if there was a parallel there. But also, like, because I have younger siblings and I have watched my mother and my stepmother raise my siblings, I do think there's this huge belief that, like, as a mother, you can't be your own person. And I've seen mothers struggle a lot with that, with Mm -hmm. the idea that, like, they are their own person and don't want to, like, just be a mother. And so for me, that guilt seemed like I... Like, I'm, I'm sorry that I can't give you my all and be just there for you. Yeah, I think I think that's really important and really valid. And we've talked in previous episodes about mother's guilt, too. I think I think that's there. I just think that and I think that it's like very strongly there. I think that guilt's really important. I just think that the grief is kind of unique just because she it seems like she is hoping to find a person that she can share this part of herself with and that like will just accept it as part of her without like fucking around about it and it doesn't seem from this story like she has a ton of close female bonds to make that with like her mother doesn't come into the story at all for after like they get married essentially and the only other female interaction we have or see is with the lady we see her talk briefly excuse me with a mother from her son's kindergarten class and she's the one who tells her about the um 
art class, we see the interaction with the lady from the art class. And like, that's it. That's the only male to female interaction we see. So I think that the grief is interesting because when you set up the idea that like, maybe my son is going to be such a good man and he's all because he like, it was part of me and grew up like with me that like, he's only ever going to see this as part of me. Like, I think, I don't know. It's just really nuanced, but I think that your idea about the mother's grief and also the idea that like you, you can't, have things for yourself and stuff like that is equally as important i think they're almost like warring feelings here being expressed through the same scene yeah yeah no i agree that's wow (laughs) it's really sad Um, yeah i do think it's important though to say that she believes strongly that her that her son grows up to be a much better person than her father does than his father does which is especially interesting because she is convinced up to the last that his father is a good man so do we want to address then whether or not we think his father is a good man (laughs) yeah i think because most of the rest of this unless there's anything else you want to talk about throughout the rest of the story but um most of the rest of the story is about her relationship with her son as he grows up. And it really is just kind of to say that like he goes through, she tells him stories and that's how she teaches him about consent and how to respect women and about the world at 15, 16, she, he stops needing those stories, but like he's, he's a good person at that point. She doesn't seem to super begrudge him that except for the fact that he's growing up. And then she like sends him off to college and they're empty nesters, but like she's proud of him. And that's when we come to like the culmination I know that that was a really fast summary. Is there anything that you want to dive deeply in into any of that before we get into this last scene? I mean, I think the story thing is important just kind of not to get too, too deep into it. But at first she's telling him like these really nice stories and then he starts asking questions like he realizes that the world isn't as nice as she's portraying it. So yeah. she starts telling him more like fairy tales that are more gruesome essentially which is closer to the true fairy tales and she says his father wouldn't approve and she also then has to move on from gruesome fairy tales to fairy tales that resemble or to tales that are kind of equally as gruesome but represent real life because he won't take the fairy tale version so to speak anymore and that's when he's like closer to being an adult Yes, and I think that that's just interesting because we've kind of talked a little bit before about the father not having any idea about the horrors of the world because he doesn't have to worry about them. But her the the reason we think her son is a good man, like as readers, is because he shows empathy. Like he's friends with a boy who has a disability or something like that. And he he seems to be gentle and caring and that's how she describes him just this idea of empathy so like the fact that i think that he knows about the horrors of the world even if he doesn't necessarily have to worry about them is what inherently makes him a quote-unquote good man because it allows him to empathize more i think something interesting though that i didn't mention in my kind of whirlwind summary is that even through all of this her son ends up perpetuating the same uh, cycle he yeah. meets a girl at 17 he gets into college a couple of days after he turns 18 he says he's gonna marry her and they're all really excited about it still so like it's interesting to me and i think that this kind of ties into the whole timeline thing and the whole generational thing as well that we kind of see happening here of almost like with each generation are we are we actually producing better people and more empathetic people or are we all just falling into the same cycles 
Um, and I don't think that the story necessarily gives us a real answer about that, frankly, because, and I think something that is important to note is that like she, the only evidence that we have that her son is a good man is because she handpicks the examples in the story and tells them to us. But uh, to come to the point that we've been at all along, like she also tells us and handpicks examples of like her husband being a good man. So like, is she a good judge of this? And like, now we come to the end of the story where we have to talk about it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So do you think her husband is a good man and why if he is, or if he isn't? I don't know. I like really, because can I read the last scene so that we can talk about it? All right. Here we go. I'm trying to figure out where to start. Um, Okay. So, I'm just going to read the whole thing. Fuck it. (laughs) It's important. The house is so silent without our son. I walk through it, touching all the surfaces. I am happy, but something inside me is shifting into a strange new place. That night, my husband asks if if I wish to christen the newly empty rooms. We have not coupled so fiercely since before our son was born. Bent over the kitchen table, something old is lit within me, and I remember the way we had desired before, how we had left love streaked on all the surfaces. I could have met anyone at that party when I was 17, prudish boys or violent boys, religious boys who would have made me move to some distant country to convert its denizens. I could have experienced untold numbers of sorrows or dissatisfactions, but as I straddle him on the floor, riding him and crying out, I know that I made the right choice. We fall asleep exhausted, sprawled naked in our bed. When I wake up, my husband is kissing the back of my neck, probing the ribbon with his tongue. My body rebels wildly, still throbbing with the memories of pleasure, but bucking hard against betrayal. I say his name, and he does not respond. I say it again, and he holds me against him and continues. I wedge my elbows in his side, and when he loosens from me in surprise, I sit up and face him. He looks confused and hurt, like my son the day I shook the can of pennies. Resolve runs out of me. I touch the ribbon. I look at the face of my husband, the beginning and end of his desires all etched there. He is not a bad man. And that, I realize suddenly, is the root of my hurt. He is not a bad man at all, and yet... Do you want to untie the ribbon? I ask him. After these many years, is that what you want of me? His face flashes gaily and then greedily, and he runs his hand on my bare breast into my bow. Yes, he says. Yes. Then, I say, do what you want. With trembling fingers, he takes one of the ends. The bow undoes slowly. The long bound ends crypt with habit. My husband groans, but I do not think he realizes it. He loops his finger through the final twist and pulls. The ribbon falls away. It floats down and curls at my feet, or so I imagine, because I cannot look down to follow its descent. My husband frowns, and then his face begins to open up with some other expression. Sorrow, or maybe preemptive loss. My hand flies up in front of me, and involuntary motion for balance or some other futility, and beyond it, his image is gone. I love him, I assure him, more than you can- or I love you, I assure him, more than you can possibly know. No, he says, but I don't know what he's responding to. This is the problem with reading really long sections. (laughs) 
If you are reading this story out loud, you may be wondering if that place my ribbon protected was wet with blood and openings, or smooth and neutered like the nexus between the legs of a doll. I'm afraid I can't tell you because I don't know. For these questions and others and their lack of resolution, I am sorry. My weight shifts and with it gravity seizes me. My husband's face falls away and then I see the ceiling and the wall behind me. As my lopped head tips backwards off my neck and rolls off the bed, I feel as lonely as I have ever been. So I think, yeah, I think he is a bad man because... (laughs) Sorry. fourth time i've read that passage specifically now and reading it out loud i feel like something that hit me that hasn't just reading it normally was the fact that she is right before this moment lauding the fact that he is a good man that she could have ended up with so many other kinds of men who would have treated her horribly and she's like so happy with her lot in life and then like it instantly the betrayal happens right like instantly his greed takes over and i think like Maybe he's not a bad man, but he's a greedy man, and it ends up taking her life, you know, because she just can't keep his greed away anymore. And, like, maybe he's not exclusively a bad man, because it's clear that he's, like, fucking horrified, you know, when he realizes what he's done. But that also doesn't excuse the fact that he did a terrible action because he'd been told multiple times it wasn't his to do. So, like, he, I feel like, still needs to be held responsible for the consequences because he was told no so many times, even if he was never told the reason. Yeah. Yeah, I think, so, (laughs) I think my question in of itself is problematic because, as a human, I don't believe in good versus bad people, which I mean, like, come at me, bro. But <laughs> no, I, mean, I, I agree. I think that the story sets up that dichotomy, though. Yeah, well, I think it does. But I think that it's also like, I think it's important that she's lauding him as a good man, because I think that we need to understand that like, people who break your consent or who betray you are not always monsters. Right? Like, because in a lot of in a lot of ways he is just a nice boy, and um, not to get too off track here, but like I'm watching uh, season three of Thirteen Reasons Why right now, and it's all about the main. Yeah, I know I really love Thirteen Reasons Why. I think it's a good show. <laughs> That's a whole other conversation. That's a different podcast. <laughs> anyway, the main ki- the the main bad guy character is like he's being it's showing his like possible reforming or his potential to reform like that's what the third season is about spoiler alert for 13 reasons why i didn't tell any of the big spoilers that's like that's the plot though kind of there's more but anyway (laughs) i think it's just really yeah i don't know it makes you In my experience, people who are abusers of any sort aren't just abusers, right? And I think that it's hard for people who are in abusive relationships, right? Like, this is not necessarily an abusive relationship, but, like, he is playing with her consent, and that's a that's a form of abuse. Um, they're 
you know, there's reasons why you love them. And that's why a lot of the times people stay. So like, I think that we need to kind of as a society, understand more that it's okay to love people, even if they're not perfect. And even if they do things that we consider bad. And I think that if we understood that more, like maybe people would be more willing to understand and look at their actions and understand that like, hey, this is not a cool thing to do. If that makes sense. So no, I, I, I think that what he's doing is wrong and he, he shouldn't feel entitled to this. But I don't know if he is necessarily a bad man. And I think that's where she's trapped. Like she loves him. She He is a man that she loves. Yeah, for sure. And I, I think something interesting about this story in particular is um, because we see it over their lifetime, which I mean is arguably... 36 to 38 years because they get married when she's 18 and this takes place and she gets pregnant pretty fast and this takes place right after her son's 18th birthday so like not a particularly long life uh also especially in comparison to when i think a lot of people typically think of like the age of parents who are sending kids off to college uh i think it's important to mention the fact that they are very young they're still in their 30s um yeah you're right yeah I can math sometimes. Forties, <laughs> like early forties, they could be like if she got pregnant two years later or something. No, I think it says that they got pregnant on the honeymoon. Oh, like wow. right yeah. after, like fast. Okay, so, so they're like, so like not even forty yet. Holy moly! Yeah, they're like they're like between thirty six to thirty eight. Yeah. Um, I think that something interesting about this story is that we see somebody. A lot of stories, I think, that kind of deal with stuff like this show somebody initially at the lowest and then like realizing that they're doing something wrong and then kind of progressively getting better. And this story kind of shows the opposite where like we start with a boy who is like a good hearted, kind boy and who like is trying, it seems like in a lot of ways to respect the consent. And then as they get older, it gets worse, you know, which I think is really important for your point about why people who are abused stay. Um, because a i think in a lot of cases you have the memory of who that person used to be and when things were really good between all of you but also the idea of the fact that like between them and I, and again like this is gross over generalizations about how abusive relationships work and things like that but patterns do exist out there and like um she stays with him because she she loves him and he doesn't start off as a bad person he grows into those tendencies you know which I think is really scary when, to, to go back to your point about the son, like it's scary to think about because the son is doing more or less the same thing. But I do think it's important that what happens is foreshadowed kind of in the beginning of the story when he asks her to marry him. And he says, like, I, I can't wait to know everything about you. And then like immediately looks to the ribbon or does something with the ribbon. Yeah. Like, he, he has felt entitled to this since the beginning. And I that's not cool, man. Entitlement isn't cool. Not respecting consent isn't cool. It's a bad thing to do. Um, let's not do that anymore. <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. Is there anything else we want to talk about? Or do we want to move on to our wrap-up questions for this story? Okay, let's move up to the wrap-up questions. So, in this story, I think it would be a little bit hard well, I don't know, though, because we do see a lot of women, even though they're not, there are women, there are women that pass the Bechdel test in this story. Anyway, my, my idea is, like, is this story feminist, and is this 
collection of stories feminist? I read the collection long enough ago that I don't know that I can comment on the entire thing, especially because I, I, I didn't like most of the stories in it. So I feel like that would potentially color my opinion. Mm-hmm. But I think that's similarly to what we were talking about. I keep coming back to a uh, difficult woman with Roxanne Gay. Like, I think that overall it's probably a feminist collection, even if the stories individually aren't like, holistically feminist you know mm-hmm. i think that there are aspects here not only the fact that it passes the bechdel how do you say it the bechdel yeah okay i was right <laughs> i always say it wrong the first time the bechdel test but also like i think that her being really like open about her sexuality and her desires and her wants and things like that is also feminist and i i think also it can be because things in the story mirror abusive relationships um i think it would be kind of dangerous to say it's anti-feminist because i would never want people to think that like you can't be in an abusive relationship and and be a feminist you know like i think that's i'm not sure so just to clarify you are saying that you can be in an abusive relationship and be a feminist yeah absolutely and i'm and i'm saying that if we said the story was anti-feminist i wouldn't want people to think that that was what we were saying you know yes but i'm guessing i'm just kind of questioning like is the stories because I think with the last two stories we we read, though they dealt somewhat with sexism, like it wasn't about female equality. It, it, with difficult women, the, the stories in difficult women weren't necessarily the two that we read weren't necessarily about female equality. I don't know that this one is either. Then, like, I disagree. I think this is a feminist story um, because it's dealing. Well, okay, so I think that this book is a little bit dif- different than Gay's um, because the the author, I think it does mention that she has a wife and um, mm-hmm. yeah, she lives in Philadelphia with her wife. So a lo- there's a lot of lesbian relationships in this story and I don't think that makes it inherently feminist, but I do think that it's dealing a lot more with femininity and like its function. And Difficult Woman does that too, but it's also just kind of like, woman in relationships with males and I think to me I don't know what this says about anything right now but um, I think to me like I don't know if this is problematic either like I think that dealing more with just female on female relationships in any form might be more feminist just because it's I don't know I don't know down with the patriarchy. I don't know. I don't know. I just, it, to me, it feels more feminist when we're dealing with female-female relationships because it's about female solidarity and not necessarily romantic relationships either. Just like the idea of having multiple female perspectives. Okay, so I think that's valid for for the entire book, but like this story specifically doesn't deal with any of those no, things that I, you're calling okay. out. No, 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 I agree. That's for the entire book, but then for this story... All of the um, stories that she tells have a female bent about consent. Yeah, and for sure. They all have some sort of spin. Like, they're not happy stories. They're sad feminist stories. And so maybe that could be considered not necessarily feminist. But, like, they are all parables about consent in some way. And that is, like, a woman's issue. Whereas the two stories that we read from Difficult Woman weren't necessarily about women's issues. They were about, um, like, poverty in America and yeah. racism and like white people com- like dealing with racism. I'm glad that you said that because 
I agree with you. I had said kind of the. I was scared that the way you posed the question made me made me scared that you were gonna say it was anti-feminist. I'm sorry. But I, it's no, it's totally okay. But like I like ultimately, I really agree with you. I think damn it, Ari. I think that there are things in it that like. I don't think that you could look at every single aspect of this story and be like, yes, this is about women's equality and things like that. Yeah. But I totally agree with you that I think that overall it's a feminist story. And frankly, this is going to be my unpopular opinion of the day, <laughs> but I prefer the stories that are more nuanced and have more going on to them as when I'm reading fiction, at least, mm-hmm. than just being like every single aspect of this is feminist and everything is kind of like, clear cut to be about women's equality i think that sometimes when i'm reading nonfiction, i really enjoy that but like in a fiction story i super prefer it in this format um and kind of with this level of like nuance and like things that do support it and don't support it and like because i think that's true of real life you know like uh there's no 100 percent perfect feminist out there so I, i like it when that's reflected in a story but i totally agree with you that ultimately this story um is a feminist story. Yeah. Okay. Um, also, do you want to do homework? Yeah. Although I will say, I think if it's okay, my homework this week for myself is, is fun. <laughs> yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah. Fun. Um, what's my homework for myself? I, I'm going to take more time for myself because lately I've been like an emotional mess of like taking, I, I give a lot of myself to other people right now. And the time when I'm not giving myself to other people, like I'm giving it to myself, but I'm giving it to myself in work. And so I'm going to like, I'm going to, after we're done podcasting today, like bake some shit. And that's going to be like, that's going to be my homework because that's for me. That's for me. It's not for match you. It's not for any of my friends or work. Fair enough. Uh, I will say I wasn't done though. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, you're all good. I, I more meant that like a lot of the times we do serious homework and my, my tone is fun, but I really want to go back and reread the original scary stories book now because I don't know. I'm just, I'm also really interested because uh, Machado ends up um, editing and changing the ending of some of these stories so that they are more feminist. So I'm curious to go back to the source material and do some like comparing and contrasting just for myself now, but also like the story just made me feel very nostalgic for that, even for all of like the parts of it that were sad and stuff. And like, I, I, I kind of want to go back to that a little bit, you know? Yeah, that's very fair. That's good too. Cause even though you all are going to be listening to this many months later, we are recording this like in September. So yeah, it's, it's like starting to become the, yeah, it's starting to become the spoopy season. Spoopy. Um, what are you reading right now, Harmony? I'm still reading Mr. Strange and Mr. Norrell. And, but I'm like, I'm like happy. Or it's Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. But I'm like halfway through and I'm really proud of myself. It, it's which a long is bad. Book. It, yeah, I know. I've been like neglecting our podcast reading a little bit. It's also hard too because it's so big. And I'm, I live in New York City and like I have to stand a lot on the subways. And so I can't physically like read the book while I'm yeah, standing. Yeah, hold it. Yeah, my shorter books, like my little books, I can, but I can't balance this book. So a lot of the time I'm just like there on the subway wishing I could be reading and I have to wait until everyone gets off the train so that I can sit down so I can read and it's a whole thing. I get you. I get you. It's a struggle. Yes. Um, next week, what we're going to be reading when after we release this, I think is Little Woman 2, Little Woman Part 2, which will be chapters. No, Little Woman Part 1. I'm going to look at the schedule, though, just so we can check, and we'll just cut this out. Do you um, want to know what I'm currently reading, or are we skipping oh, that? Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry, Maggie. What a 
It's all good, mate. We're reading. I'm reading The Harp of Kings by Juliet Marillier. So, a uh, fun fact: uh, if you follow our social media, you will see exactly how far in advance <laughs> we record. <laughs> because I realized the past couple weeks that like all of the books I've been currently reading were posted within like just a couple days of us recording, and I was like, "This is this. The people aren't going to know about this for months." <laughs> it's okay. They'll they'll like it's it's fine. People who understand podcasts will understand. Somewhere we have oh, okay overview episode episode recording. No, that's not what we want. We want it's okay. It's on. It's on my phone. Give me one sec. Okay, yeah. So no, no, you're right. It is. It is Little Woman One. So we're doing Jahani, and then we're doing this book, and then we're doing yeah. Little Woman One. All right, which is chapters one to fifteen. Oh yeah, yeah. I knew that. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so we'll be reading chapters one to fifteen of Little Woman. Yeah. Okay. Uh, do we want to sign off? Oh, rate and review us. Rate and review us. Rate and review us. But only nice things. But only nice things. Also send us nice emails because, like, we like nice things. And, you know, we're sad sometimes. And maybe we need a little cheering up. So Harmony's been stressed this week, y'all. <laughs> send her nice things. Been stressed this month. Oh, yeah. Send me nice things, please. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much for listening to Rebel Girls Book Club. We'll talk to you next week. Goodbye. Okay. You can follow us at Rebel Girls Book Club on Instagram, at Rebel Girls Book Club on Facebook, at Rebel Girls Book One on Twitter, and you can email us at rebelgirlsbookclub at gmail.com. Our theme song is called Pretty Boys Make Me Feel Ugly, and it's by The Gays. See you soon, and remember to read rebelliously. Oh,